You're listening to Radically Pragmatic, a podcast from the Progressive Policy Institute. We talk with lawmakers, policy experts, and thought leaders about the issues driving the news nationally and internationally. The Progressive Policy Institute is a catalyst for policy innovation and political reform with offices in Washington, D.C. and Brussels. Its mission is to create radically pragmatic ideas for moving America beyond ideological and partisan deadlock. We encourage analytical conversations, not your typical partisan talking points. Hello, everyone. My name is Jasmine Stoughton. Welcome back to another episode of the Mosaic Moment on PPI's Radically Pragmatic podcast. For those of you who don't know, Mosaic is a project at the Progressive Policy Institute that aims to put more women at the forefront of policymaking by empowering our experts with the tools and connections needed to engage with the media and lawmakers on today's toughest policy challenges. We have special guest Kirsten Wagner on the podcast. Kirsten is a Mosaic alum and also the CEO of Modern Markets Initiative. And today we're going to unpack her recent op-ed in Real Clear Markets titled Safe and Sound Capital Markets are a Bipartisan Imperative. Well, Jasmine, thank you for having me on. I'm a huge fan of your podcast and of the Mosaic Project in general and just love all the great work you're doing. Thank you so much. We're really excited to have you. I think this is your first time on the podcast, right? Yes, and I hope I hope not the last, because like I said, I'm a huge fan. Definitely. Um, so we'll just jump right in. I really loved your piece. We will um, link it in the show notes for anyone who wants to read through the op-ed. It's pretty short, um, very to the point and very clear, especially for me as someone who is not at all a finance expert. My first question, um, you kind of break down the the op-ed into four chunks for recommendations for the incoming Congress. Um, And I love the bipartisan element of it. I think that it it completely made sense to me. Um, And we're going to have to work in a very bipartisan way to get anything through this time. So um, my first question for you is what is working well for investors and what improvements, if any, do you think could be made to the existing market structure? Well, Jasmine, that is a great question. And I think my research at Modern Markets Initiative has shown that over the past like two or three decades, we've seen this kind of radical democratization of the markets, right? Where if you look at like 90s trading, or if you imagine that Wall Street movie with all the guys on the trading floor, then it costs like $6 to trade $100 worth of stocks. And what's working now is that like people can basically buy or sell for near zero cost. So that has opened the door especially to people who aren't making huge trades. It was like prohibitive if you were just an average investor starting out to take away $6 out of your hundred, that's like voiding an entire first year annual return. So just opening the doors to that technology to um, really enable people from all backgrounds and income levels to be able to trade without those high kind of transaction fees, that has been working well. But that being said, there's always room for improvement, right? We look at the markets over the past several decades, they've gotten like, you know, definitely much less expensive, but there's always a need for transparency, right? I think, you know, whether you're a smaller investor or investing through your 529 plan or your pension fund, I think everyone wants like completely transparent markets. So you know where your order is rooted, you know that they're not intermediaries taking up fees, that you're getting the best price. And so I think there has to be an emphasis on transparency. And I think that Gensler will be looking at that at the SEC. And I think that is definitely a bipartisan issue where you can see Democrats and Republicans coming together. Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's really helpful, too. Um, 
you referenced um, Securities and Exchange Commissioner Chair Gary Gensler. He's putting together some proposals, some recommendations on changing the structure, the market structure. Um, can you kind of unpack a little bit of what we could look for in that? I'm sure it's going to be a massive report that people who are not policy wonks are not going to be able to comb through, but um, can you kind of talk about what you're looking for in that? Sure. So here it is. We're looking right at the start of 2023, right? And we know Congress has to be bipartisan as they're reviewing what Gensler is doing. We can expect um, Chair Gensler to be called in for an oversight hearing with Republicans chairing the House. So he's going to really have to make a case for what he's looking at right, with market structure reform. And I think there are a couple elements that we'll see people you know, getting behind. I think he's talking about best execution and moving it from FINRA to the SEC, as he says, like bringing it upstairs. I don't think that's mm. going to be very controversial. It's kind of codifying what FINRA is already doing um, and bringing it to the SEC. I think there are different types of disclosures under, don't not to get too far in the weeds, but he has a whole disclosure section under 605 of what you know financial firms should disclose to their customers. And that goes under that bucket of transparency. So I think that's something a lot of people can get behind. And then, you know, the devil is in the details. You're going to see other proposals that, you know, some people have referred to more as, you know, science experiments of kind of changing the market structure, whether it's through auctions or tick size. And that is going to take, I think, a whole year to unpack as people analyze data. And it's a very ambitious agenda, given that the last you know, major market structure reform was in the early 2000s with Reg NMS. And so I think you're going to see um, kind of bipartisan questions about that and like what is necessary, what isn't, what kind of cost benefit analysis would justify something. And I think that's the great thing about our kind of government process is you have the time for everyone to weigh in and hear all the perspectives and share all that data. So we're going to see just this incredibly busy 2023. I've told people if you thought 2022 was crazy with all the comment letters, 2023 is going to be just super busy. Yeah. And I mean, the technology has changed so much since the early 2000s. So I think it is long overdue um, for an update, especially talking about transparency, because it is so easy now to invest. Um, being able to get that information on the back end, too, should be easy as well. I agree. Um, so my next question is about the regulatory framework, which we've kind of just mentioned. So it's a great segue. But um wow. This is a big one, but what is the regulatory framework that you would propose for a digital assets market? In your op-ed, you talk a little bit about the Enron moment um, of crypto, and obviously regulation is is clearly long overdue. So what would a regulatory framework from your expertise um, look like? Well, I think first and foremost, industry wants clarity, right? There's a lot of debate over SEC versus CFTC regulation. I think at the end of the day, businesses are savvy enough that if you provide the clarity, they'll be able to adjust to whatever regulator you propose. But the worst thing you can do is not have a clear framework. So I think that's just number one, like come up with a framework, just pick someone to regulate it. As long as there's this gray zone um, and kind of the regulation by enforcement, it makes it really hard on two fronts. Number one, you know, it kind of shortchanges investors of the full protection they'd get with a clear regulator. So that's kind of a consumer protection angle. And then number two, you know, if you're a business trying to build out your business model and there's not a clear framework, it's hard to like raise capital and actually grow out your business 
if you're worried that years later, the laws may change. So just that clarity, I think, is the first step. And I'm kind of agnostic, as shocking as it is on SEC or CFTC. I think people can make that decision, but I'd say just make it soon, because as long as we're in the gray zone, it's kind of this kind of quicksand for us. We don't know where to go and we're kind of stuck. Yeah. And it's funny to hear you say that you're agnostic because you're one of the strongest people that I've heard on crypto. I think you come from a very nuanced perspective. I loved your podcast, um, Crypto Study Hall. I I learned a lot just about crypto, what it is, how it functions. Um, and I, I think it's shocking to me that it's it hasn't been put under the jurisdiction of an agency yet, just because we've been talking about this from day one is like, well, we have to figure out who's going to do the work, right? Like, that's that's the first step. Who's going to do it? Um, yeah, so. It's almost like people have indecision. And I you know I've gone like shopping. I'm like, which dress should I buy for this event? And then you don't have anything. You're like, wait. And that's a weird example. But I just mean like, this is something that's so urgent. We have to pick. You can't like succumb to inertia on this. I think it just has to be a selection. And I know that industry doesn't align on everything, but people just have to get together and build consensus around a, around a choice. And, um, you know, this Enron moment of crypto hasn't helped anything because it almost feels like the regulations or the proposals are starting from scratch. And so, mm. um, you know, people are definitely distancing themselves from the bills that Sam Bankman-Fried had um, endorsed and probably for good reason, right? But it just starts the process all over again. But I do think whether people are Democrats or Republicans on the Financial Services Committee, that just nailing down a framework will be a top 2023 deliverable, that I would be surprised if they can't deliver it by the end of the year. Absolutely. I mean, it is all of these recommendations that you've laid out are bipartisan and there are, you know, champions on both sides of the aisle who are really invested in, in seeing these bills come to light. Um, but I think, yeah, from from the folks on the Hill that I've talked to, crypto is something that affects a lot of people and just is not a partisan uh, issue by any means. And can I also just jump in like, um, you know, a lot of people think they're not invested in crypto, right? But there's definitely this kind of correlation between the crypto markets and the equities market. So if you have an S&P index account in your 529 plan, saving for college or your pension fund, like you're indirectly tied in because there are all these publicly traded companies, whether it's like Tesla or, you know, Michael Saylor's company that are invested in Bitcoin. And so their stock prices are kind of related to the valuation of crypto. So even if you think, this doesn't concern me, I'm not invested in crypto, you may be indirectly having skin in the game. So it's kind of like in every retail investor's kind of interest to have that clear framework, even if people don't care about crypto. If you have any stocks in the S&P, you probably should care. That's such a good point and something that I don't think a lot of people know. Um, even people who are able to choose their own um, stock options and mutual funds, they may not know all of what's in um, a specific stock option. So I, I might not be using the right terminology here because I'm not at all an expert. I mean, it's so, and like, let's be honest, we all have busy lives. A lot of us, like myself, I love ETF investing because you invest in something and you don't have to think about it anymore. But those ETFs right. get rebalanced, especially like in those pooled assets. It's really important to make sure you have efficient markets and that, you know, the regulators have full transparency of what's in them. Then you don't have to think about it as much yourself if you know you're kind of covered with the transparency. Right, if they have your back and your best interests in mind and then and then a way to check that, an yeah. easy way to check that, definitely. Yeah. So your third paragraph is on 
reauthorizing the task force on financial technology and artificial intelligence, which I did a little bit of research on the task force just to see what what it was up to last. In your op-ed, you talk about AI markets. Um, obviously, AI is huge right now. Um, I, I'm thinking of the portraits that everyone's uploading to their social media, but bigger than that, um, AI investing. Uh, you you talk a little bit about it in here, but um, what is the first topic that you think that this hearing should focus on if it is reauthorized? So I, I feel like it, the task force on financial technology and artificial intelligence is a number one thing that the committee should reauthorize. It's a wonderful bipartisan committee with some really strong Democrats and Republicans with this interest in kind of the future of science and technology and that intersection with the financial markets. And I had the amazing pleasure of testifying before the committee in 2019 on the future of AI. And so that's probably the topic I would pick again, which is just like, how do you look at these huge trends of the growth of AI and figure out, even from a future workforce perspective, like how do people build their careers, right? And AI is not going to replace humans. It's more like a tool for humans. And when we talk about AI investing, it's like a tool for the human investors to use, right? It's not like its own sentient being at this point. So how do you use AI to make the cost of trading go down or the cost of investing? That could take many forms. Um, you know, the, the big brokers that manage your portfolios and have to comply with government regulations and do kind of back-end accounting, a lot of that can be reduced in cost by AI. And so that kind of overhead cost gets shrunk and your cost of asset management goes down. But also, like, what are the jobs that are going to be created in AI? I think that's the exciting topic for me because, like, kids now have to pick a major or pick what if I want to work on Wall Street, like, what should my major be, right? And if I'm a young woman or person of color who wants to work on Wall Street and break in, like, what should I be focusing on? So I do talk to quite a few kind of middle school students about it. And, and I work with Charlton McElaine at the NYU Center um, College Career Lab. He testified next to me at the um, task force in 2019. But, you know, it's it's really about looking, what were the data points? Like a major in computer science and coding may be more helpful for a financial services um, future than like a business degree. And that's like a huge fork in the road. Like if you know you need coding and math to get into financial services, then that's an area that like kids should focus on from a young age. And if we get more kids in the pipeline, that opens up more career paths, you know, for future career paths using AI. And it's going to be a huge you know, job source for people. So I think I think that's really important for people to look at the future of force, workforce angle of AI. And it's something I'm personally like really excited about. So my last question is on the beneficial role of automated traders. So this is a, another great segue, but you end the piece kind of talking about the pros and the cons um, of automated traders in helping maintain fair and orderly markets. Is it fair to say that automated traders effectively level the playing field um, in the market? And what are some of those pros and cons of automated traders? Sure. So, I mean, absolutely. When you look at the data of the cost of trading, you know, a decade ago or two decades ago to now, it used to be like 50 or 60 basis points to trade a stock. And now it's less than a penny. So that money was captured by intermediaries before. And there were these scandals with some of the floor-based specialists, whether it was Vander Moulin Associates or others of front running. And so, um, or when there was market volatility, people would call their broker to buy or sell and people just wouldn't pick up the phone because it would be to their disadvantage potentially to 
place that deal where they'd have to be the counterparty. Now with the market automation, like investors can get in or out of the stock market no matter what. And no one can like ghost them and not answer the phone. So having the kind of algorithms generating the trades or as a tool for the humans has been really helpful as far as just making sure there's dependable liquidity and reducing that cost that the kind of humans on the trading floors used to provide. Um, so that is a benefit. I think, you know, the more um, automation you have, the more it's like kind of democratized that everyone is kind of an automated trader at this point that, you know, now you can trade from your iPad or your phone. That level of information is so robust that you see a lot of really young people starting to trade too, that you can get all the SEC statements online. You can get a lot of information online. I mean, I think like anything else, like I won't call it a negative, but people need financial literacy, right? So the ease of access that we've opened the door so much has made it more imperative than ever that we make sure people understand the markets. And when you look at like, you know, with GameStop, the death of that options trader, right? Who thought he was underwater because of like a typo on the platform, you know, there is like this huge amount of public education that needs to take place as more people are trading directly, right? And, and that is a huge, I think, growth opportunity for industry to play a role in that, right? But um, yeah, I mean, people need to be educated as they're going in and Fidelity, I think, has reduced their age for the teen trading accounts, I think, to 14, which is, you know, super exciting, but you hope there's like parental environment and, you know, some maybe that in and of itself is a form of kind of learning by doing. But as you open the markets, you've democratized it. And at the same time, you have to make sure people really are educated on like the risks and kind of rewards of what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. And in your, in your op-ed, you kind of, at the end, your, your proposal, your recommendation for Congress is, I guess, not oversight necessarily, but um, a questioning of the SEC's recent and, you know, proposals for the future that they're, they're working on on automated trading and things that could potentially harm the way it functions now, the things that are working well. Um, do you think that this oversight would be in the form of a hearing or um, briefings? Like as if, if there's any experts listening who, you know, are a finance expert, someone from Mosaic or someone in the network who feels like they have some expertise here and want to impact Congress, want to um, talk to lawmakers about both sides, either the harms of a potential SEC ruling or, um, you know, the benefits of something that they're doing, highlighting something that they think should be um, a, a new rule for automated traders. I guess, what do you think is well, a great pathway for Congress? I think that the proposal is going to be a thousand pages long, right? And people are going to need, the lawmakers and the regulators are going to want data on either side. So for people who are experts in the field of market structure and market automation, now is a great time to do some homework. Like I will certainly over the next three months through March and April be working on my homework and putting together my data because at the end of the day, it's it's not like hypothesis that moves the needle or like a new theory. Like this is actually you know, what we discussed at earlier, like half of Americans have money in the market. So it's not something to do lightly. Um, so I think just putting together data to buttress an argument, whatever that may be, and showing um, data to support opinion is really helpful to the SEC as they evaluate it. Because for the next year, the comment window may be like, you know, 60 days or something. I, we've not seen the proposal yet, but once it's out, even after the comment period ends, there'll be an opportunity to, to weigh in because this type of huge um, overhaul is something that is just begging for more data to be invited. And so I think it's going to keep 
you know, statisticians and data scientists very busy and also just a great opportunity to go in and meet with people on the Hill, you know, and I think Modern Markets Initiative will be happy to host, you know, a market structure roundtable or some sort of briefing in the spring. So people should also feel free to reach out to me if they have data they want to, you know, share with me because I'm happy to share it as well or to set up a forum, maybe even with the Mosaic Project to share some of that information. So I think there's a lot of room for people to play an important role in education and in a bipartisan fashion. That's a very exciting prospect. I think it's something that the Mosaic Project is really eager to do next year too, is a little bit more work on the Hill. Um, we aren't lobbyists. I know you are, congratulations, by the way, um, top lobbyist of, on the Hill uh, or from the Hill, um, five years running. <laughs> yeah, I'm embarrassed to say, I think next year will be my 20 year anniversary as a registered lobbyist. I'm a weird lobbyist though, because I'm like a bipartisan lobbyist. I work with both parties. It's less... Like I didn't work on the Hill. Most people, the conventional path is they worked in an office and they only lobby that party. And I, I think I'm like, in a weird place because I you know, work with both parties and I, I see things, I try to see things from all perspectives so that Modern Markets Initiative can maintain that kind of nonpartisan slash bipartisan um, kind of role for education. But it's more necessary than ever because I feel like as we have this extreme partisanship, um, people are craving just some commonality, like in these two different versions of reality that we're reading in the press, like especially with market structure where our like livelihoods, our savings, our like college future, our retirement are at stake. Like it shouldn't be partisan at all. That of all things should be just something where we can look at the numbers, look at the transparent data and agree on some conclusions, which is why I say again, like as your listeners are, you know, experts in the field, like share the data because that's going to shed light on like where this process should go and hopefully arrive at the you know, most thoughtful result that should be the best for investors. And it is really helpful too, when you're going into a, a briefing on the Hill or you're hosting a roundtable to have people from both sides of the political spectrum, but also having a wide array of data and information so that legislators who want to take your ideas and put them into laws can then have something to choose from. If you're going into a briefing and it's all one side and they're all, everyone at the panel has the same perspective, there's not going to be something for everyone there naturally. And so having these more bipartisan conversations is really, really helpful, I think, especially when we want to think about creating laws that really do look out for everyone's best interest, have something in them for everybody. Yeah. And, you know, one final thing I should put in is I think as we look at like the risks and rewards of market automation, right, there are always going to be some bad actors out there, whether it's the floor-based specialists or people using newer technologies. And so it's so important that the SEC and FINRA and these financial regulators have the tools and resources to be effective cops on the beat because like the schemes get more um, sophisticated, right? It's not just cybersecurity hacks, but it's also, you know, front running is illegal. Our MMI members oppose front running and any sort of market manipulation. And our guys actually work together with the regulators to share information to try to like bust some of these bad guys to, to keep it really simple, right? So the industry does have to work with the regulators together to make sure we share the latest technology information with you know, FINRA and the SEC so they know how you know the technology is working so we can help them you know, detect any sort of fraud or manipulation in the markets. And that's an important role for industry to play. So I won't say it's like a flaw with market automation, but it's a flaw with humanity. There's like a small percentage of in the bell-shaped curve of humanity who might be bad actors. And we as industry have to come together to like make sure the regulators can be a good cop of the beat. So 
Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, well, thank you so, so much for being on the podcast today. And I'm excited to see what we come up with uh, this year and what's ahead for Mosaic and Modern Markets Initiative. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Super exciting year. Thanks for listening. Want to learn more about the Progressive Policy Institute? Follow us on Twitter at PPI and on Facebook at Progressive Policy Institute, or go to our website at progressivepolicy.org. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen and check back for new episodes. We'll talk with you soon.